Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Greg Bennett, linguist and lead user researcher at Salesforce. We talked to Greg about chatbots, how they learn right from wrong, how to deal with context and social identity when building them, and how to approach bias and training of chat data. We also cover text-based interactions and how to read them, the meaning of pauses in a conversation, and anonymity and politeness on social media. Lastly, he shares how his expertise as a linguist fits into a multidisciplinary team. We hope you enjoy it. Before we get started into the interview, um, I just want to make one small mention. You might hear a few cat noises throughout the video. It's uh, my cat, Branka, who was very eager to get to meet Greg, but because of um, his cat allergy, we had to leave her in a different room. So she was not very happy with that. Um, therefore, you might hear her uh, once in a while throughout the episode and apologize for that again. Hi, Greg. Hi, Karina. As I mentioned before, you're our second um, recording that we are doing live. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited to welcome you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Amsterdam is a great place. <laughs> yes. So just before we kind of dive into it, um, tell us a bit more and also our uh, listeners a bit more about you. What what has been your career path with technology and research and linguistics? Sure. So yes, like you mentioned, I studied linguistics when I was in undergraduate and graduate school. That's really where my path started. It sort of started with this curiosity about how language connects humans to each other. And that was always sort of the way that I experienced humanity, was how people talk is very revelatory of how they experience the world. And particularly when I was in, toward the end of my undergraduate and the beginning of my graduate career, I got quite focused on how people communicate in online conversations that are text-based. Mm. So how does conversation change when users, humans, are communicating to each other, but they can't use their face, they can't use their voice. And that really evolved out of a breakup. Oh. <laughs> yes. So I was dating someone and then he broke up with me over online chat. And I could feel it coming leading into the breakup. Like, oh, I think this is not going somewhere. And once it, once it was over, it was like my very first relationship. So I was very heartbroken and they needed answers. And like, you know, a good academic, why not use my personal pain for research? Yeah. And I started to wonder how could he convey himself as cold or distant over text when I couldn't see his face or hear his voice. Mm -hmm. And that was what introduced me to the world of linguistics as it pertains to conversation and discourse. And once I started studying that, that's what sort of drove me to consider how do people communicate in online spaces in real time? using text. And as a result, once I was done with graduate school, I then moved on to, I did a little bit of teaching for a while. And then one of my advisors, um, she contacted me after quite some time and said that Microsoft was hiring a researcher in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And they were specifically looking for a researcher who knew something about conversation 
and uh, ethnography. Mm, And I thought, oh, okay, well, I never thought that I had, because I wasn't a computational linguist. Mm. I didn't focus on NLP. Mm. I didn't focus on anything quantitative. I'm Mm. very much a qualitative researcher that I didn't really, I thought that I didn't have a place in tech. And Mm. then, so when I saw this job posting, I kind of thought this might be too good to be true. But then when I sat and interviewed with them, they told me that they were hiring for the Cortana team. And what they needed was someone who understood the science of conversation, if you will, to help the design team think through designs for the product. Mm. And that was really how I got started in the world of user research. At the time, I didn't even know what user experience or user research was. And I was very fortunate to have a senior user researcher there who sort of took me under her wing Mm. and she taught me how to do usability testing Mm. and card sorts and whatnot. And I realized that it wasn't a huge jump from Mm -hmm. linguistics and that really I could leverage my understanding about how people communicate their values Mm -hmm. and how they reflect the way that they see the world in not just in what they say, but how they say Mm -hmm. it. And that was sort of the beginning of my career. And now I'm at Salesforce and I'm leading user research for our Einstein bot product, which is a chat-based uh, text-based chatbot platform that we offer to our support and service customers to help scale their businesses and grow in terms of, um, you know, managing cases and taking in requests and whatnot hmm. over uh, a text-based chatbot. Oh, so you're still in the area of uh, text-enabled uh, conversation? Yes. Oh. And I didn't start out that way when I was in Salesforce. Hmm. When I started at Salesforce, I was doing research on the flagship Salesforce product called SalesCloud. So a lot of people who use Salesforce, when they say Salesforce, they tend to think of SalesCloud because mm-hmm. that's where everything started. Yeah. And at the time when I was there, I worked on the AI product yeah. called Einstein for sales. And I worked on lead scoring, forecasting, etc. And how you can leverage predictive modeling to help get a better sense of where your sales are going and mm-hmm. how that's sort of tracking toward the future. And then about a year and a half, two years into that, there was an opening on the service cloud team. And I knew that that's where the chatbot product lived. And so as soon as I heard about that, I said, everybody out of the way. (laughs) I want to work on this. And it's been uh, excellent ever since. Yeah. So how have you seen linguistics affect the way you work, influence? Yeah, I think it's... Primarily my approach to a space. Mm -hmm. As a linguist, I look at anything that anyone says as data. Mm -hmm. It's actually a codified reflection of what's going on in their mind. Mm -hmm. And I think a big piece of it, I I studied specifically in linguistics, I studied the world of sociolinguistics. So how do people use language in interaction and conversation? And there's always that question that you can ask, well couldn't that person have said it this way instead? Mm. And then that begs the question, if they said what they said, the way they said it, how they said it, and when they said it, then there's got to be a reason. And you can use that to sort of reverse engineer and figure out, okay, what motivates the person? What is their value system? How do they see the world? And then how do users then react to that? What are they saying when they scroll through a page? Mm. And what are they not saying? So, yeah. for example, taking a pause in conversation, that's an inherent piece of how conversation works. If you're not taking a pause, then all you're doing is talking and then the other person is not yeah. talking. And then it's not a conversation, it's a monologue. 
if someone takes a longer pause, then that means something is going on in their brain. A researcher found in the 1970s that in English conversation, the length of about the standard length of a pause is one second. Anything longer than that tends to get a little bit more. um, It tends to signal a little bit more that there's something else going on. Mm. Now, about a decade or so later, another researcher found that humans who speak English uh, tend to take a longer pause before they say something negative. And the logic behind that is that conversation is something that we as humans want. We want that to flow. We want it to move um, very fluidly and, you know, have harmony with Mm. the other person. And so in order to sort of disagree with someone or say something negative and create disharmony, that requires a lot more mental effort. So all of that to say, all of that sort of as the backdrop to what I'm about to say, when I'm in a usability test, for example, and a user pauses for some time in a particular space, as opposed to saying something to me, Mm. then my thought is, okay, why are they pausing here? How is that pause compared to previous pauses that that person has taken? And it allows me to kind of start to unpack just through a transcript even. How does how do people how does this particular user orient to the interaction at hand to the um, the stimulus on the page, mm. if you will. And yeah. that was certainly how I looked at it when I was on sales. When I was on sales, I wasn't working with conversational UX. Mm. But for me, the way I perceived it is you know, I, as a linguist, I was trained to study interactions and look at where the communication broke down or became troublesome for both parties. And that's where I can start to understand more about the people who are involved in the conversation. My thinking was, if we replace one of those people with a computer, with a machine, with a robot that can converse with you or just a web page mm-hmm. that the person, the user is interacting with, if we consider any of those a participant in conversation, then we can start to use the same techniques, you know, comparing how the user is reacting to what's on the page, for example, taking a pause, etc. Yeah. If we look at it within the scope of a conversation, we can use the similar techniques to figure out more about how they perceive, not just the website, for example, but how it lives within their world and their perception of the world. Okay. Wow. That's fascinating. (laughs) I have like two questions that are connected to this. Like one of them is taking it back to text versus non-text. Like how does text-based conversation affect the art of interaction with each other or the Mm -hmm. act of interacting with each other versus non-text? And uh, the second one would be um, when conversing to an entity, a computer mm-hmm. or somebody else that you can't see face to face, how does your perception of their identity changes or how do you construct the perception of their identity? Absolutely. So I think with the first question about how does text vary, text-based interactions mm-hmm. vary from non-text-based interactions, I think that if we think about text-based interactions as opposed to, say, a face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. The way that t- text-based interactions are different is that you can't see the other person and you can't hear them speak. And a huge piece of conversation is... I mean, no one on the radio <laughs> or no one listening can see me gesturing with my hands right now. Yeah, but I can hand, see. Yeah. <laughs> hand gesture says a lot. Yeah. Eye contact says yeah. a lot. And vocal pitch and intonation and speed mm-hmm. and pace, all of those signal things. They can signal enthusiasm. They can signal respect or deference toward yeah. another person. All of that goes away when it's just text. Yeah. 
And so, you know, it would be easy to assume that in a text-based conversation that if they don't have their voice or their hands that it's just gone. But the reality is that humans are very resourceful creatures. So they then recruit different aspects of text mm. to compensate for the fact that they don't have their face or their voice. And so what you'll find is users will leverage spelling variations, any kind of textual variation in terms of like font size, mm. font type, mm. italics, um, all caps, or and even punctuation to then augment the nature of what they're writing, to give it that tone, to give it that voice and tone. Yeah. So I'm sure many folks are familiar with what it would mean if you type, you know, typed in all caps and sent yeah. that to someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what it would mean to shout at someone in person. And so I think that's a really key difference. And it's a huge sort of cornerstone of the work that I do in chatbots, advising folks to really think through the linguistic implications of using any of these things. Mm -hmm. I think that particularly for chatbot interactions, the UX is literally the conversation. Yeah. And so for folks who are designers or researchers in UX, it becomes even more fundamental to think through what are we saying? How are we saying it? What does it look like? Yeah. When does it show up for the user? Mm -hmm. What about the identity part? Absolutely. So another key facet in social linguistics is the idea that identity is constructed mm -hmm. and you construct identity through what you say. And so everything that you say and the way that you say it is a sort of byproduct of your experience mm -hmm. throughout your life. The societies and the social groups that you interact with growing up, they sort of teach you the boundaries of conversation, mm -hmm. how you should say what you should say. And you acquire what um, a linguist named Deborah Tannen calls conversational style. Mm -hmm. And conversational style, it's not anything special or out of the ordinary. It's literally just the way that you talk. Mm -hmm. But there are folks who have similar conversational styles to each other and then different conversational styles to each other. Yeah. And as a result, the perception of one's identity comes out of the sort of reading of those styles. So the, I mentioned Deborah Tannen and her work on conversational style, which she found in her research. She was actually one of my uh, professors when I was in graduate school. And I had the great fortunate opportunity to work with her very briefly. And what I learned from her work is that there's two main styles of conversation. There's one that's called high involvement, which is someone who talks really fast, asks a lot of mm. personal questions, doesn't really leave a lot of pauses. There might be overlapping voices or overlapping mm. speech. They'll talk at the same time as another person to show enthusiasm for the conversation. On the other side of the spectrum, you have someone called a high considerateness speaker. And that is someone who believes that only one voice should be heard at a time in conversation. So you take a pause, you leave time for the other person to speak, and that shows politeness. Mm -hmm. If you put the two of those speakers together, where they're kind of opposites, you have the high-involved speaker thinking that the high-considerateness speaker is boring. Mm -hmm. And then you have the high-considerateness speaker thinking that the high-involved speaker is rude. Mm -hmm. Because the high-considerateness speaker can't get a word in edgewise, and the high involvement speaker is doing all the talking so that other person must be bored. Mm. And I think that's a very clear representation of how identity can be constructed in talk. It's our prior experiences of the way you say something and how you say it 
then sort of yeah. govern our perception of what kind of person that person yeah. is who's doing those things. So how would that work with a chatbot? Because how, how does, uh, you know, intimacy repetition, like constant learning, how does it work in that case? Absolutely. I think it has to be very deliberate. Mm. And this is something that I advise anyone who is making a chatbot to think through very carefully in the beginning is to think through what a lot of content strategists and um, documentation writers call voice and tone. Mm -hmm. And so especially if you're a business that is creating a chatbot for um, its customers, then it becomes even more important to figure out, okay, how does this chatbot and what it says reflect the brand of our company? So every company has some sort of voice and tone mm -hmm. and the, it gets reflected in their marketing materials on their website in how their employees speak. The chatbot is literally another channel mm. by which you can represent the company. Yeah. And so in many ways, you know, you have service um, centers, support centers that will give scripts and literally decide what the voice and tone of their service agents should be when they're talking to their customers. Yeah. It's not all that different from a chatbot. So thinking through a lot of what I had mentioned, you know, are you going to use all caps in your chatbot when it talks to its customers? You should think through yes or no and why for each of those things. Um, does it use emojis? Um, if so, why? Yeah. Because emojis can do a lot in conversation over chat to create that involved, yeah. enthusiastic tone. Um, is that something, is that reflective of your company's brand? Is that in line with your company's brand? And so literally going through and being very purposeful about what you write for your chatbot to say and how it's supposed to say it. It's, I think, the sort of core focus of what UX for chatbots should be, the focus on the words and the representation yeah. of those words in conversation. Yeah. How, how do you deal with context and, let's say, ethnical differences? Yes. So that's something that I think is very important to consider from a corpus perspective. Mm. So I believe, I firmly believe in the power of data. And as I mentioned before, I'm a qualitative researcher, but that doesn't mean that I also don't know when it's appropriate to use quantitative measures. Mm. And I think because language, so like I mentioned before, language is a, the way that you talk as a result of this uh, social groups that you grow up speaking with. Um, a lot of that can be motivated by different, um, demographic factors. So how your age, your ethnicity, mm -hmm. your race, yeah. your sexual orientation, your gender all get characterized in yes. talk. Yeah. All of those things can map out in different ways. And there's been many sociolinguists who have sort of done the cross-section of those things. How do people who exhibit this type of identity speak? Mm -hmm. And I think that was really the, that was the beginning of sociolinguistics in the first place. It started out in uh, New York City, where there was a linguist named Bill LaBeouf. And he noticed that the way that people pronounced the word floor was different if you went to Saks Fifth Avenue versus Macy's versus like a very like um, common store. Okay, so it was a signifier for class. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see all right, how people talk, not just at the sentence level, but at the sound, the phonetic level, mm -hmm. or even the morphological, the word level or the syntax level, you know, how they orient themselves in their sentence 
and how that all sort of clusters together to form discourse, all yeah. of those things can be traced, can stratify against things like race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc. And so being very careful about how not only the chatbot should perceive those data when customers say things to mm-hmm. it, but also how the bot constructs its own identity for those users, I think this has to be very corpus-driven. So you need a lot of data, data yeah, in order to make yeah. those decisions, but it also has to be very purposeful. Yeah. How do you deal with bias in, in this case? I would say it would have to be through corpora. Yeah. You literally need to source a ton of d- chat data because if we're really specifically talking about the text-based chat use mm-hmm. case, I think voice-based UI is a, a separate yeah. um, but similar strategy. And with text-based, I think that there needs to be extensive research that you can pull where you can then determine, okay, all right, is it really a misspelling yeah. or is it a construction of their identity? Yeah. And I think for me, when I he- hear conversations about data science and natural language understanding, natural language processing that say, okay, well, we, we, what's the word? We normalize mm-hmm. for all kinds of misspellings. Yeah. I think, okay, that can be dangerous yeah. because there yeah. could be a certain level of erasure that happens there. Yeah. So if I type out, the word Y-A-S yeah. in all caps with multiple S's. Uh-huh. There's so many uh, sociolinguistic stipulations about that word. Mm. It harkens back to the intersection of black and gay identity. And that at what point are we appropriating that at some level if we mm. decide to make mm. our chatbot use that word? Yeah. I think despite the fact that it's sort of entered the popular lexicon, And it could signify a certain level of youthfulness and enthusiasm. You know, as a company, it would be important to consider, okay, what would those uh, marginalized group think of us using this word in that way? Yeah. So I think it's very important to not just decide, okay, are we going to use different types of terms that then construct this identity for a bot? And particularly if we think, okay, we want our bot to feel young and fresh. Yeah, yeah. Picking the word YAS, that would, you know, certainly index a bit of that, but it also comes with other identity stipulations. And then similarly, if you're training your bot to listen to customers, you don't want to take the word YAS and call it a misspelling and filter it out. Yeah, Because imagine if someone typed the word, you know, YAS to a bot, and then the bot says, I'm sorry, I just don't understand. Yeah. And so then it shows a different kind of bias. So I yes, think on yes. both sides, the responsibility does fill up, fall upon the person who's creating the chatbot. You have to train, really think through what it means to be a quote-unquote misspelling mm-hmm. and train your data on large variation, large corpora and wide variations of how things can be spelled and phrased. And make sure to mark that again. Do your sort of do your homework and your research. Yeah, mark yeah. that against what we know from sociolinguistics about you know, what types of identities do those things construct, convey, and represent? You have to really think through what it means to train your bot on data and provide it oversight. Mm. So if you just sort of, if you let the bot run amok and you don't actually pay attention to what it's like. My favorite metaphor is like uh, children. Mm. So for folks who have kids, I'm sure they can completely relate that kids when they're learning language will just repeat whatever they hear 
regardless of whether or not they know that it's socially acceptable to say this or that in a conversation. Yeah. I mean, to this day, I still get teased by my parents from when I was in preschool. And I went up to my preschool teacher and said, my mommy doesn't like you. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's, another, that's just an example of, you know, okay, kids will repeat what they hear. We have to think of bots in a similar way. There's got to be someone who's overseeing the bot and teaching it right yeah. from wrong. You know, I think and coming from the United States, I think this is something that goes on in popular discourse. The idea of, you know, being both sensitive to different demographic stratifications, mm -hmm. but also not ma making sure to not overstep and then go in the direction of prejudice. Yeah. And I think that's something that, especially in the world of bots or anything in AI, for example, is really important to consider. Mm -hmm. You want to look at what the bot, what gets fed into the bot, where those data are sourced from, how they're tagged and the social implications of how you've tagged yeah. those data yeah. and how you sort of make your bot aware of these social implications. That said, you don't want the bot to then leverage that awareness for the sake of being prejudiced against certain populations. Yeah, gotcha. Awesome. That was great. <laughs> so I have just one more question because before I want to move into the area of working with this okay. type of uh, expertise. So we had um, a professor from um, India, also a linguist, mm. speaking uh, to the topic of politeness and trolling on social media. And he was basically trying to explain why uh, he thinks, you know, why the Twitter bot got so, mm -hmm. you know, has that uh, foul language mm -hmm. used because he was saying like, people use that type of way of interacting right. with each other on social media. And he was trying to understand why mm -hmm. you know what drives why are we like that mm -hmm. on social media or in text mm -hmm. and we might not be like that in real face -to -face. yeah face to face so i just was curious to know your opinion about that i think my thoughts on that have to do with uh, distance mm -hmm. right so if you're not if you're not there with your face and you don't have to necessarily own what you say with your face if it can't be tracked back to you and it's a little bit more anonymous then I think that you feel a little bit more freedom in terms of what you can say and possibly what you can get away with. Mm. I think that might be a little bit of a motivator of that type of behavior. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually quite interesting. What does it have? Do you think that has an effect on the face-to-face -face one? Like as our way of engaging with each other in terms of weight, maybe switches more to that type of interaction? I haven't done any systematic studies on this, but I do have sort of my own personal, I think, mm -hmm. I guess, opinion on it. And I think that there's sort of this dichotomy of, um, you know, you feel this anonymity and therefore a lot more freedom to express yourself to a great and sort of even outrageous extent mm -hmm. online. And then in person, there's this social need as you have to own up to whatever you say with your face to be a little bit more constrained, perhaps. Yeah. And I think some of that could then relate back to certain conversational styles. There are other, there, you know, a high involvedness, a high involvement speaker would likely be more willing to speak to with, I guess, um, more emphasis or yeah. more uh, ebullience and as opposed to maybe a high considerateness speaker. I think there is sort of that conflict. It results in maybe, um, at least when I think about it, I grew up kind of doing a lot of writing mm -hmm. as a child and, and when I got older 
um, anything from short stories to poems to song lyrics. Mm-hmm. Any, I, I think writing is a great way of, of producing that catharsis mm-hmm. for sort of the human condition. That said, in online spaces, it, even though it feels conversational and it's happening in real time, it is being mediated by writing. And so I think if I think about it from sort of that linguistic perspective, is that sort of catharsis through writing something that then gets sort of the wires get crossed with conversation yeah. somehow? Yeah. Where in person you may not necessarily say that, but you're also venting mm-hmm. through writing. And because it's happening in real time and it is a conversational exchange, does that sort of create that channel for that yeah. type of data to f- filter through? That, that's fascinating. Huh? I, I, was, I was thinking about it because my interest behind linguis- linguism and how do you use it in conversation came mm-hmm. from the debating, basically. Mm-hmm. And how do you... How do you talk to people that have different opinions of you in yes. a way that kind of makes a constructive conversation? Yes. And I realized that with, with text-based debating on Facebook, I started mm-hmm. debating on Facebook um, heavily mm-hmm. with very charged topics like mm-hmm. politics yes. and gender and ethnicity mm-hmm. and all of that. And I found it personally very difficult to yes. debate because it's very difficult to... Yeah, you don't have... I think anonymity, when it comes to debating, can be very difficult I think to also the affordances and the limitations mm. of each medium, right? Yeah. Like, if you're having a debate with someone face-to-face, you have your voice, yeah. your face, yeah. your gestures, your hands, your eye gaze, all of that to mitigate yeah. the impact of what yes. you're saying. Yes. But when you're writing something in text, it feels very final. Mm. And I think also there's that aspect of those of us who have, you know experience this in school we have been sort of socialized to deconstruct and and hyper analyze and literally literally try to prove a point and write a thesis Mm -hmm. and so i think the influence from that i think the influence from that does sort of create a little bit more of a high pressure um and so if you can construct your argument in text and you can write it very you know thoroughly then you're sort of faced with the social challenge of mitigating the impact of that because it comes down to the idea of, okay, am I going to make my point or am I going to renegotiate the boundaries of this relationship yes, in some yes, way? Yes, yeah. And I think that, I mean, because at the end of the day, the way I see conversation and language is it's all about relationships. Yes, yeah. You know, the, whether or not both participants are human, I think is irrespective of that. Mm, if mm. you know whether it's a web, and that's how sort of again how I sort of see the intersection of UX and linguistics. Yeah. If literally human computer interaction. Yeah. If you have a human and a computer, how do you then forge a relationship between the user and the system? Mm. And a lot of that is derived from the conversational interaction. I think conversation is the fabric by which we negotiate relationships mm-hmm. in society. And so thinking through in an online space, how does that differ from face-to-face interaction? What are the limitations and the affordances in yeah. some ways of yeah. writing and how that translates itself into mm-hmm. a type of conversation, I think is where it starts. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> Great. So I wanted to move on to the next part of, of kind of like um, my questions, and that has to do with your area of work and how does it fit into a team mm. um, 
into a multidisciplinary team, I would assume. Like Absolutely. how, what can you share about that? How do you, how do you see it? Maybe for those of our listeners that don't have this type of expertise inside of their design or product teams? Sure. That's actually something that I really value and enjoy about the team that I work on. Mm -hmm. Salesforce UX and the, the user research team are quite diverse. Mm -hmm. So I'm a linguist. I have colleagues who, you know, studied uh, human computer interaction, human factors, but also music therapy, mm -hmm. art therapy, uh, Uh, interior design. I think it's really important to consider all of the different types of humanities mm -hmm. that can be studied and how each one of those lenses brings to bear a different interpretation of the human yeah. existence. And at the end of the day, that's something we want to represent mm -hmm. when we think through user experience. I think the multidisciplinarity, particularly now that we are working more and more on automated systems and yeah. artificial intelligence, is a must. So I was, I'm here in Amsterdam because yeah. of World Summit AI, the conference that just took place. And there was a oh. professor there who I think said it quite eloquently. Her name is Professor Francesca Rossi of IBM Research. And she said, bias in AI doesn't get defined within the AI community. It comes from outside, from people who analyze the performance of these tools. Without a multidisciplinary approach, we're not able to even find the issues let alone the solutions. Mm. And I completely agree. I think that one, you know, it was a huge theme at, at the conference and it's not a surprise that it is mm. that there is this d desperate need to hire very diverse teams and yeah. actually listen to what these yeah. diverse team members say. Would you see it as a role of a linguist or a, to also aid or facilitate the conversation between these multidisciplinary, uh, you know, uh, teams? I know myself as an anthropologist uh, working with other multidisciplinary mm -hmm. team. It, it's 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 a great process, but it can be also quite difficult. Yes, I think. I mean, I, I can't speak for all linguists, and maybe mm -hmm. if my linguist colleagues hear this, they might think <laughs> that I'm volunteering us all for something. But yeah. I I do think that linguists have a responsibility to facilitate conversations between parties because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. particularly sociolinguists. That's what yeah. we came to this field for, is yeah. to literally bridge gaps. Yeah. I think that, you know, being able to explain to someone why yas yeah. as a word has so many different meanings and sort of introduce the yeah. history and the lineage of where that came from and what are the, you know, social implications mm -hmm. behind it. I think that's what motivates anyone of us who is in social linguistics to be in this field. I think when it comes to the workplace, for example... It's, I mean, it's a skill that I leverage every day. Mm. To, I, so I really see myself as the person who goes between a bunch of different groups and tries to make sure that the message gets across the divide. Yeah. And I think that linguists in particular are actually quite well equipped with the tools to be able to create and facilitate that communication. Yeah. It's about listening for what people are saying, what their conversational style is, and how that's a reflection of how they view the world and what their world values are, and then figuring out how to then create alignment between groups who have disparate yeah. conversational styles. And that's something that I find to be sort of like, that just comes with the job. Yeah. And so it makes this work fun. Sounds like a cool job. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, how would you advise somebody that is interested of entering this field, maybe coming from academia? Um, how should they approach it? Absolutely. I think 
anyone who's interested in moving into the field of UX, mm-hmm. um, I tend to give different advice depending on where they are in the academic system. So if they've already graduated, then I would say, you know, leverage your alumni network, Mm -hmm. try to literally, you know, connect with everyone you could possibly can who graduated from your university and is working in this field. Um, If you are still in school, then... I mean, I am quite jealous of folks who are still in school. Because <laughs> Me too. <laughs> the uni- universities have a lot of resources. Yeah. Like, I yeah. think the thing I'm the most jealous of is library access. Yes. What I would do for library access again. For me, it's time. Oh, okay. Yes, that too. <laughs> I think, um, you know, check out ACM, CHI mm. uh, conference proceedings, literally any journals that are in the space of human-computer interaction. Yeah. But also, you know, Go over to the computer science department, see who is teaching a course on human-centered design, human-computer interaction. Mm. Um, Any of those things would be quite, I think, helpful to get a sense of, okay, is UX even something I want to do and interested in or if it's right for me? And I think... If I, you know, if I could do it over again, I, I, I when I was in linguistics, I was very narrow minded. I mm-hmm. thought, OK, I, I only want to study sociolinguistics. So yeah. That's what I'm going to do. And if I could do it over again, I would take a course on natural language understanding, mm-hmm. natural language processing. Yeah, because it's it's I mean, it's the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily, I was able to take stuff afterwards. But, yeah. Um, you know, at the time, I, that's something I very much encourage students to do now, especially if they're in linguistics. Mm-hmm. I would say take the computational yeah. linguistics course, even if you think you can't do it, even if it seems scary, even if it seems kind of not interesting. It's just worth exposing yourself yeah. to that. Yeah. So I would say those two things combined, you know, find people who are working in this space, especially if they're connected to mm-hmm. university have coffee, have tea with them, ask them questions, you know, conduct some informational interviews, see if maybe one of them is letting to, willing to let you shadow them. Yeah. I think literally conduct an ethnography of UX. Yeah. Oh, that's an awesome advice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Greg. Absolutely. I, I always try to kind of like police myself with the time because okay. I tend to go overboard. But thank you so much. And we hope our listeners also enjoyed it as much as thank I did. Thank you for having me. It was a total pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.